Well, we are uh, finishing up this weekend our three-week series on Jesus-centered families. And so here's a question for you to consider today. Do you view children primarily as a blessing from God? Or do you view children primarily as a nuisance and a bother to have around? And I know you might be tempted to answer that question one way if we're talking about your own kids and another way if we're talking about others' children. But just thinking about kids in general, which way do you bend? What's your default mode when you think about kids? In the book of Luke, in his gospel account, he includes a story about Jesus and little children that is very intriguing, I think. It's probable that this story gave rise to the cute little Sunday school chorus that many of us learned growing up in church. Jesus loves the little children. Here's the story. It begins in Luke chapter 18 and verse 15. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. That's where we'll be this morning. And uh, there's also a study outline in your worship folder if you want to reach in and pull that out. Follow along with us. Luke 18, verse 15. It says, Now they were bringing even infants to him, that's to Jesus, little babies, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. That's interesting. What do we see here? Well, at this point, Jesus was about two years into his public ministry. He was traveling around, healing people, teaching about the kingdom of God. And on this occasion, he was in a place called Perea. And there were some Jewish parents there, maybe a whole group of Jewish parents. And according to the custom of the day, these parents wanted to bring their little children, babies, to the rabbi, to Jesus, so that he would lay his hands on their children and bless them with a prayer. That was something that the Jewish writings, the Talmud, instructed parents to do. It was considered a good thing. However, Jesus' disciples saw this happening, these parents pushing their way through the crowd with their little children, and they apparently felt that Jesus was way too important to be bothered with little kids. Or maybe they thought that his schedule, his itinerary, was too packed already, and he didn't have time for this, or... Maybe they just believed that children were a nuisance and uh, not something that Jesus needed to deal with right then. So when they saw these parents making their way towards Jesus with their crying babies and their rambunctious little toddlers, it says that they rebuked them, not the babies, but the parents for trying to get to Jesus. They literally blocked their path and attempted to turn them away. Now, it's interesting that just... A few days before, these same disciples had observed Jesus taking a little child into his arms and basically looking at his disciples and saying, look, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, become like a little child. They'd just seen this a couple days before. And doubtless, they'd seen Jesus countless times take little children into his lap and into his arms and love on them and treat them tenderly and with compassion. And yet, they had not yet embraced this same value that Jesus had for little ones. Kids were just a nuisance to these disciples, a distraction. So when Jesus saw his disciples doing this, turning these parents away, what was his reaction? Well, Mark's version of this same story tells us that Jesus was indignant. That means he was angry. He wasn't angry at the parents. He was angry at his own disciples. 
Here's what John MacArthur writes about this. It's likely that there were a number of reasons Jesus was angry with them. He was angry because he loved little children with great affection. He no doubt felt special compassion for them because of the sinful, painful, corrupt world into which they had been born and whose evils they would progressively have to face as they grew up. He was angry also because he loved parents and he understood the special longings and anxieties that parents have for their children. He also realized that loving little children was a way into the parents' hearts. He was angry because no one, not even the tiniest little infant, is outside the care and the love of God. He was angry because of the disciples' persistent spiritual dullness and hardness. And he doubtlessly was angry because the disciples presumed to determine who could and who could not approach Jesus. And so he made a bold move, stunning, beautiful move that undoubtedly humbled his disciples. Jesus calls out to the parents who were being turned away and he says, come, come back. No, 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 come. It's okay. Bring your babies to me. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. I imagine that stung a little bit for the disciples. Here they were in the midst of rebuking the parents and Jesus rebukes them. So the rebukers got rebuked. And that's always humbling. So Jesus summons these parents and these babies. And again, Mark's version says he took them in his arms and blessed them and he laid his hands on them. wonder how many Bible story books have that scene on the cover. Jesus holding little children and uh, bouncing some others on his knee and wide-eyed children gathered all around him just enjoying that moment. That's a sweet picture, isn't it? And it's an accurate picture, I believe. And right at that special moment, Jesus holding the babies, proud parents looking on, Jesus did what he often did. He seized the moment to teach something about God. Let the little little children come to me, he says. Do not hinder them. Here it is. For to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, will not enter it. And maybe the parents who heard this were wondering, well, what does he mean by that? What's he saying? Maybe you wonder what he meant by that. To such belongs the kingdom of God. That's interesting. There are many Bible scholars who believe that one implication of Jesus' statement here is that babies and little children who die before they're able to grow up and become mature enough to exercise faith in Jesus, are under the special protection of the sovereign king. That God promises to bring them into the kingdom of heaven. To such belong the kingdom of heaven. One scholar whom I trust writes this, It's not that small children are born again, regenerate, and then lose their salvation if they don't later receive Christ. It's rather that Jesus' atoning death is applied on their behalf if they die before they are able to choose on their own. By the way, that is my position. I do believe it's supported here and in other parts of the Bible. I believe the grace of God is operative and that God has mercy on little ones who die in the womb or who are infants or young, not able yet to choose Christ for themselves. So I praise God for his grace. To such belongs the kingdom of God. What about this other statement he made, though? Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What did he mean by that? I think to get a clue as to what Jesus meant, we have to look at the 
context. And by the way, that's an essential principle for interpreting the scriptures. When you want to know what the scripture means, look at the context. Look at what surrounds it. And in Luke's account here, we find this story of Jesus blessing the children sandwiched right in between two other stories that also involve Jesus. Now, who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, that's exactly right. What was Luke's occupation? He was a doctor. He was a physician. So we can presume he was a very bright guy. And Luke did not write his gospel account haphazardly. There was a scope and a sequence and an overarching purpose for why he selected the stories that he did to put into his account and why he placed them in the order that he did. So let's check this out. Coming right before the story of Jesus and the little children, Luke records this parable told by Jesus. It's in Luke 18, verse 9. Here it is. And he, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this lowly tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now Jesus' commentary. I tell you, this man, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's interesting. Then there's the story of Jesus blessing the little children. Then there's this story in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, the rich young ruler, said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, well, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. But when he, the man, heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Now, both of these stories have to do with wrong ways of approaching God. Wrong ways of seeking God's acceptance and favor. And Jesus was forever correcting misconceptions that people had about how to go about being accepted by God. Both the Pharisee in the parable and the rich young ruler who came to Jesus were convinced that God was quite pleased with how good they'd been behaving. The Pharisee even proudly recited or recapped all of his religious practices to God in his prayer, as if God didn't already know. I fast twice a week, I give tithes. And then he revealed how his own goodness made him feel superior to others who were not as consistent as he was in performing these spiritual duties. The rich young ruler believed that he had kept all of God's commandments since he was a little kid, and he felt confident on that basis that he was all set 
with God, that he was set for eternal life. And then sandwiched in between those two stories, Luke places this account of Jesus blessing little children, bouncing them on his knees, and looking out and saying, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Do you see the theme here? Do you see why Luke strung these three stories together like he did? Here's what Jesus was saying. When it comes to the entrance requirements for getting into God's kingdom, it's not about trying to be good. Because no one could be good enough. It is about trust. It's about trust. I think human beings, unbelievers and believers, need to hear this again and again and again and again. It is not about our performance. It's not about our efforts and achievements. Who does God welcome into his kingdom? Not those who think they deserve it. Not those who think they've kept God's commands. God only welcomes those who come to him like little children with nothing to offer him. No resume, no credentials to lay out before him. No cause for feeling superior to everybody else. No smugness over how good I've been or how well I've kept God's commandments. God welcomes only those who throw themselves on his mercy. Like the tax collector. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Like little children. No pretense, nothing to prove. Totally dependent. Totally dependent. When I think about little kids and their dependence, my mind goes back to the years when we were taking our kids to swim lessons down at the Hunter Avenue pool. Free swim lessons. We thought, cool. And we took our kids down there, and usually while the older ones were taking their lessons, I'd take one of the littler kids over to the shallow four-foot end, and we'd just kind of splash around for a while. And inevitably, we would get to that time where my child would be standing on the edge, shivering, dripping wet, wanting to jump into the water, wanting to learn how to jump in. And, of course, Dad would be there with him, and I'd step back about four or five feet, and I'd be looking at him and say, Come on, buddy. Come on, jump. Come on. I'm here. Daddy's here. Trust me. Just jump. And, you know, he'd start and then, no, and then think about it some more, and then then hesitate. And finally, in each of my children's cases, I remember these moments, they would decide to throw caution to the wind and just take the flying leap out to Dad. And of course, as a good dad, I would, I would, I would immediately go, hey, fend for yourself, buddy. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I'm a good dad. I'd grab my kid. I mean, I might let him slip a little bit under the water and then pull him back up and hug him. And it would be this moment of childlike faith where they just flung themselves out to daddy, trusting that daddy would catch him. That's childlike faith. When Jesus says we need to be like little children, I don't think he's advocating being childish and immature. I think he's advocating childlike trust in the Father. Not trying to impress God with how good we've been. Not relying on our own efforts or goodness. Just reckless abandon and a flying leap into his arms. Trusting his person and the work that he has accomplished through Christ on our behalf. Of such is the kingdom of God. So viewing all this 
in that light, I see a few themes emerging from this whole section of Scripture in these three stories. Number one, Jesus really does love little children. Sing it with me, would you? Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. You guys are good. You guys are good. If you didn't grow up in church, you're thinking, what the heck was that? But Jesus loves little children. He created little children. He bounced them on his knees. He cradled them in his arms. He prayed over them. He blessed them. He touched them. He doesn't view children as a nuisance or a bother. You know, he rebuked his disciples, but said, let the kids come. Second theme emerging from this, children should be encouraged to come to Jesus in faith. They should be. Or said another way, children can believe and be saved. Praise God for that. We should be encouraging our children and each other's children to take steps of faith, to leap off the edge into the Father's arms. Children often don't possess some of the qualities that can hinder adults from taking that leap, huh? Like pride and stubbornness and self-consciousness and what will others think and all that. A lot of times kids don't have all that. They just have that childlike trust. Third, God welcomes all those who possess childlike faith. Everyone. Everyone who sees their sin, everyone who is awakened to see their sinfulness, and who cast themselves on Christ and his sacrificial work on their behalf, God welcomes. And fourth, God turns away all those who trust in themselves. Can't miss that, can you? He turns away all those who feel superior to others because of how good they are, who are measuring themselves by their neighbors, who think they've behaved well enough to earn God's favor. They will find themselves being turned away from the kingdom. They won't make it in. Only those with childlike trust. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I I think there's also another key learning here for those of us who are parents or who may be parents someday and who really want to raise children who love Jesus, Christ-loving kids. You can judge whether I'm inferring more from this story than what is actually there, but I think I'm on solid ground. I believe that by placing these three stories together like Luke did, that he is implying that it's possible for parents to unwittingly raise Pharisees. To raise children to not love Jesus, but instead to love themselves and become like that proud Pharisee or that self-assured rich young ruler. Say, what do you mean? Well, I would submit this to you. If in our parenting we only stress with our kids the importance of always being good, of always behaving well, of always making good choices, of always being careful to obey all the rules, if that's the only message that we're communicating to our kids or the primary message, be good, keep the rules, be good, behave, that's what's most important. If that's what we're communicating, I wonder how that's setting into their hearts. Don't shoot me. Hear me out. I know as parents we are certainly tasked with the responsibility to train our children to obey. I'm not challenging that. But these days my question is different. 
My question is this. What kind of parenting is most likely by God's grace to result in children who really love Jesus? Who appreciate God's grace? Kids who grow up keenly aware of their need to throw themselves on the Father's mercy. Who realize that they haven't been good enough and aren't being good enough and could never be good enough to earn acceptance, to be welcomed by a holy God apart from His intervention. What kind of parenting is most likely to produce children who love the cross? Or said a different way, a way I've been asking myself lately, am I parenting in such a way as to increase the likelihood that my kids will turn out to be Pharisees who think that they do everything right, they feel superior to others, and believe they are entitled to God's acceptance because of how good they've been? My parenting in such a way as to lead my kids to believe that they, just like the rich young ruler, keep God's commands just fine and are good enough for eternal life? Or is there a way I can adjust my parenting so that my kids understand that just like the tax collector in the parable and just like the little children in Jesus' arms, they have absolutely nothing to offer God to impress him so that at some point in their lives they say, Lord, have mercy on me a sinner, like the tax collector did. How can I parent my kids in such a way that the gospel of Christ, the cross of Jesus, becomes precious to them? I think that we as parents need to be asking ourselves that question and each other. You see, Pharisees don't love Jesus. They don't need him. They're good enough in their minds. They think they're fine with God and God is fine with them. At least prodigals, at least prodigals can get to a point where they've experienced enough to perhaps come to their senses one day and realize they'd have it so much better back in the father's house if he would just have mercy on them. But it's those older brother types who are proud of how good they've been, how loyal they've been, who resent God's offer of mercy to their rebellious younger siblings, how will they ever be broken enough to cast themselves on Jesus and love his sacrifice? And so I don't know where you're at, but but for me, I see my parenting changing these days because of the gospel. Like Jay said last weekend, I agree, there are a million factors that, affect how our kids actually turn out. I don't believe there are any promises or guarantees. But I've come to the point in my life and in my parenting where I deeply desire my children not just to keep all my rules, but to love Jesus deeply and to embrace his cross passionately. I'm seeing more and more how the way I parent is a factor in contributing to that and shaping that value in them. All right, speaking of things that have a part in shaping the values of our children, let's not forget each other. Let's not forget our church family. Amen? I'm grateful to be in a church family for many reasons, but one of those is that I know that there are other adults speaking into the lives of my children besides me. And sometimes you're doing it better than I am, or at least it's getting through better, you know? I've been trying to get something across for 10 years and one of you will say something in a small group and they'll come home and say, Dad, this is really great stuff I got from so-and-so. It's like, yeah, how's that any different than what I've been telling you for the last decade? But that's just my pride. 
Well, I want us to, to uh, think for a little bit about our church family's role with our children, individually and collectively. And so to help me out, I'm going to ask our children's ministries director, Darcy Stelzer, to come on up and join me for a conversation that I think is going to benefit all of us. So let's welcome Darcy. Well, Darcy is uh, not only our children's ministries director here at New Life, but uh, she's also a wife to Brad for 28 years and uh, a mom of three boys. And um, she's a great lady. She's been on our team for a few years now. And um, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your own journey in working with children and your involvement with kids here at New Life? Sure. Uh, My husband, Brad, and I joined New Life in July of 1998. And we had served in children's ministry at our previous church, and uh, we thought a great way to get involved would to be to be greeters in the back children's wing. And we really didn't know anybody or know where anything was at, uh, but we smiled a lot and we figured it out with the new people that came. And so we really kind of got involved in that way. And uh, shortly after that, we started teaching second grade Sunday school. And uh, my husband moved on to a leadership position in the tech ministries. He found that that was his love um, with the children to, to take the media and make it um, relevant and fun for them. And then I took training classes and moved into leadership in our kids' celebrations and served in that ministry for many years. And then in 2005, um, Pastor Steve and I talked a lot about um, whether this was a good fit for me taking the a position that I'm in today, and I did, obviously, and so I'm privileged to sit with you today. Yeah, so coming up on six years, which is great. Now, I know you to be a very passionate person, especially when it comes to children and Jesus. Why don't you talk about some of the things that you're especially passionate about? Yeah, well, I've been passionate about a lot of things um, throughout the years in children's ministry, but uh, recently... I have had the privilege of watching God draw children to himself. Um, Just kids are smarter today, it seems like, than we were growing up. And they know a lot more, and it's a lot scarier that they know a lot more. But because of that, they really, their comprehension level is amazing. And um, just as we've been teaching them and what we've um, been just expressing, their response to that is just amazing to be a part of and to watch. In the last few years, you and I have had a lot of discussions, both just one-on-one and also with our, our ministry leadership team, about the gospel of Christ and just the desire to um, make the gospel central to our church life, to our individuals' lives. And I'd like you to share just a little bit about your own journey in discovering uh, the preciousness of the gospel and the place it has in your heart now. Yeah, I, uh, I think we all tend to filter that experience through our own uh, experience. And so as I, I was listening to what Pastor Steve was saying, and God started sending people in my life that were really passionate about the gospel, making that the central part of their lives. And so I just kind of saw God working in my own life, just embracing me to learn more and go deeper and dig deeper and in an intellectual and theological way. And so I, I love digging into big books and understanding and just uh, know that God doesn't do that within a person to absorb it and keep it to themselves. And so I knew he was working in me in a way that would help me learn new things so I could then pour that out into others. So how has that 
fleshing itself out these days in our ministry to children, the, just the centrality of, of the gospel. Well, I knew you were going to ask me that, and um, there are a lot of thoughts in regards to that, and I really wanted to express uh, the primary purpose and what we're doing in children's ministry right now. So I wrote that down, so I hope that's okay. And um, I'm going to use the word we here because... Uh, definitely our children's ministry is a team of all of you. I look at your faces and, and you're in this journey with me and we're in it together. So that's why he's the worm, uh, we here. So as we have made the shift to continually have the gospel message as our primary focus, a transformation process has been happening with our kids. They are learning more than ever before that the Bible shows us the picture of God's big story. The people of the Bible are part of God's story, but we are too. Instead of the primary focus being on the behavior of the Bible character, you know, do what Jonah did, trust like so-and-so did. Um, The shift is in what God did, not in what the Bible character did. And really, it's a very slight adjustment in our overall thinking, but thinking over the long term of the impact of your children, um, it's an important adjustment. So that moves our overall thinking uh, from acts of obedience or moral behavior to the realization that we can never be good enough. And Jesus is the only one that keeps God's law perfectly. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive to be good, but we be good because we love Jesus, not because it's just the right thing to do. So therefore, in order for us to be made holy and righteous and to, to the point of being in God's presence, we need Jesus. And in God's great love for us, he showed us mercy and grace, thereby fulfilling the law perfectly through his son, who in turn glorified the father by doing so. So our children are learning that God's laws reveals man's sin and ultimately bring glory to himself. So by by having a better understanding of the law, they will have a better understanding of the need for grace. And so that's, that's kind of a new way of thinking for all of us. And our teachers are embracing it. And God is just revealing himself and making himself known in great ways. It's just exciting to be a part of. So it sounds like that we're seeking to instill in our children um, an understanding of God's holiness and his love. Yes. And that an understanding of one actually leads to an appreciation for the other. Yeah. It's a lot to absorb, but... Your kids are embracing it. They're getting it. And I know I'm probably not smarter than a fifth grader. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you and I share, you said a few moments ago, we are all in this together. And you and I share a common vision to be part of a church where it's okay to not have perfect kids. My kids are not perfect. Yours are not perfect. Amen. Yours are not perfect. (laughs) And to be able to be in a community of believers, a church family, where we all understand that, that our children are not perfect, they're going to make bad choices, and that we are a family, and we support one another during those times, and uh, instead of looking down our noses in condemnation um, at people who are struggling in a season of their parenting, let's say they have a teenager who's kind of wandering off on that prodigal route, or just not listening, or whatever, maybe an all-out rebellion, that we're part of a church family that instead of, you know, condemning during a time like that actually comes alongside with support and prayer and encouragement. And, you know, 
could we all just give each other permission today to not have perfect kids? I mean, would that be okay? Can we just say that? We're not perfect parents. Our kids are not perfect. (laughs) You know, God is the perfect parent, and he had rebellious kids. Think about that. Sometimes we look at a child and we immediately make, draw a one-to-one connection with their parents and make judgments about them in our minds. And instead of being a grace place, we, we've become a law place. And let me tell you something else that, uh, as a pastor, is a frustration to me. Sometimes parents, when they're in that situation where it's hard, where their ki- kids are not listening or are unruly or in, are in rebellion... Sometimes I'll see parents begin to just pull back, just start to withdraw a little bit. They feel ashamed. They feel embarrassed. They think that if they come to church, others are going to look down on them and draw that one-to-one correspondence and conclude they must be terrible parents. And I've seen this happen again and again and again, and that at a time in their life when they really need support and encouragement and friends to come alongside them, they're pulling back, they're pulling away, they're withdrawing, and at some point... In many cases, they just disappear. And we'll be sitting in a meeting one day and say, whatever happened to so-and-so? And and we know that it's because they were struggling with their children. And I want to say, does it have to be that way? I mean, does it? Could we, by God's grace, become a church where when you're in that situation, you're actually pressing in to your brothers and sisters in Christ and your church family and saying, hey, we're going through it right now. I could really use your prayer and support and that they would have that confidence to know that's what I'm going to get at New Life Church. And I know we we share that passion to see God create a climate here like that. Talk a little bit about just um, the role of, you know, the church family in the lives of the children of New Life. I've seen a couple of extremes over the years. You know, there's the parents over here who take their responsibility to train their children seriously and even on the extreme to a point where they say, you know, we don't need to be that involved in church or we don't need our kids to be that involved in church because we're doing it. And on the other extreme are the parents who come and say, here, turn my children into Christians, please, because we don't know what the heck we're doing. And then there's every, you know, point in between on that scale of extremes. But talk for a little bit about the church family's role in the lives of the children of New Life. Uh, those extremes do make it difficult to to meet the needs um, of our church community sometimes. And having uh, three different services, sometimes it's convenient to come to one or the other. And I guess my challenge to you would be to think about the spiritual goals that you have for your kids and to really sit down and um, think through and evaluate, kind of like I did in our children's ministry, evaluate uh, with your spouse, if, if there is one, and, and think about where your kids are spiritually. And I guess I would suggest, and I've done this, so please don't think I'm here to condemn, to evaluate your calendar. And don't put um, God on the same level playing field of all the other very important things in your child's life. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I'm like, is your homework done? Is your homework done? You're kind of like the skit lady. But I... I just really have tried to make the change, you know, in the last several years to help kids and demonstrate, my husband and I together, demonstrate that really God is the primary 
um, factor in our lives, and we need to set that example for our kids and show that example to our kids. So taking value in what is offered to them in ministry here at the church and, and helping them be involved, don't let them decide. You help them decide. Well, I uh, love having you on our team and God's work in your life of uh, just causing you to have a deep love for Christ and his gospel. I love the opportunities that we have that you provide in our church um, for adults and teens to serve and to come alongside our children and help them learn about Jesus and love him more and more. My family has benefited from that greatly. And we could talk a long time about these things, but we we better wrap it up right now. So let's thank Darcy for uh, her ministry here. Thank you very much. To finish out, I'd like to recommend a couple of resources to you, which I understand we're totally sold out of in the bookstore after the first celebration, but they're taking names. This one, if you have little children, this is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. You know, Jesus said that the Old Testament was about him. Yeah, Adam and Eve, Noah and the ark. Cain and Abel, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale. Jesus said, those are all about me. (laughs) And this storybook Bible helps parents point people through the Old Testament stories to Jesus, to the great rescue that God promised. And uh, I have friends who have little ones who love this. They swear by it, read these stories to their children, always pointing them to Jesus, to Jesus, to Jesus. So check this out, the Jesus Storybook Bible. And then if you're a parent like me of children and uh, you struggle at times with discerning, okay, what do they need right now? Does this child need more law or grace? Does this child need me to lay down the law right now and define the rules or do they need me to, to just offer unconditional love regardless of their behavior? And then, of course, if you have multiple children in different stages of their lives, you know, discerning all of that can be a huge challenge. This is a book called Give Them Grace. Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus by a mom and her daughter. I'm reading it right now. Great, great resource on just learning to get the heart of God on how and when to apply law and how and when to apply grace and leading your children to grace. So check this one out. Give them grace. How many of you are parents? You have children living at home, in your home with you right now. Can I see your hands? Well, it's not for cowards, is it? Parenting is not for cowards. And how many of you are grandparents and you're enjoying that role? Yeah, I hear pretty good things about grandparenting, so I'll get there one day. I just want to say a prayer for all of us who are investing in the lives of little children right now. So would you bow your heads with me? Lord, I feel compelled first to pray for any parent who's sitting here right now covered over with guilt and shame just weighing on them, feeling like we didn't do it right. I didn't do it right. I wish I'd known then what I know now. And all those kinds of condemning, accusing thoughts, Lord, I pray that you would help them to understand that the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from even those sins and failings and shortcomings. Would you do like you did to the, to the lady last night? Would you just reach into some hearts right now and extract that guilt and shame? And let them know that all of that has been covered by your grace, by the blood of your Son. And Lord, from this moment on, from this moment on, give us your grace and wisdom and discernment 
to parent our children, to invest in our little ones in the way that you would have us. We confess our, our failures and shortcomings and our need, Lord, to understand when to apply law and when to apply grace. Oh, how we need your discernment. Lord, we pray that you would raise up little ones from within our, our congregation to love Jesus Christ, to love the gospel, to love his cross. And Lord, would you do in their lives what we cannot do and what they cannot do? Would you, would you affect those heart changes, Lord, that, that we can't do? May the power of the gospel truly be the power of God to salvation for all the children and students and teenagers who believe it. We ask for your help, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. Bless and protect our children, we pray. Draw them into a love relationship with your son. I ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen.